Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Devika Girish. And I'm Clinton Crute. We're the editors of Film Comment. This week, we have a special episode inspired by the recent release of The Beatles' Get Back, Peter Jackson's eight-hour docuseries about the making of the band's 1970 album, Let It Be. The flurry of conversation inspired by the film about its length, its restored archival footage, and the ways in which it captures the process of music making and rehearsal got us thinking about music documentaries more generally. What makes them good beyond the music itself? How do concert documentaries differ from artists' portraits? And which documentaries truly capture and maybe even re-envision the craft of their subjects? To dig into these questions, we invited Geeta Dayal, a noted music, art, and film critic, and Ashley Clark, the curatorial director at the Criterion Collection. Our conversation touched upon a number of documentaries, The Velvet Underground, Milford Graves' Full Mantis, Ornette, Made in America, Sisters with Transistors, and of course, Get Back. We hope you enjoy the conversation. And keep an eye out for a special podcast bonus coming to this week's Film Comment Letter, an essay by the Romanian filmmaker Andrei Ujica about his own long-gestating Beatles documentary and a recent serendipitous encounter that may just have blessed it. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. We have two very special guests with us today, a returning hero, so to speak. Uh, Ash, do you want to introduce yourself? That's very kind. Clint. Um, I'm Ashley Clark, um, curatorial director at the Criterion Collection. I haven't been on a film comment podcast for a long time, but very excited to be here today. Thank you for letting me back into the building, so to speak. I appreciate it. Very, very happy to have you back. Yes, indeed. And a first time visitor to the film comment podcast, uh, Gita. Gita Deal. I'm a arts critic. I write about music and visual art and culture in general and film quite a bit as well, especially relating to music. Yeah, and that's kind of why we thought we'd bring you both on. You're both enthusiasts of music documentaries, or I don't know about enthusiasts, Gita, you certainly have written about quite a few in the past couple of months. And you've had some very interesting things to say. In particular, I think what inspired this was your piece on uh, this podcast inspired this podcast was your piece on the Peter Jackson Beatles Get Back documentary in four columns. Tell us a little about the doc. I, I really don't know that much about it, actually. You know, it, it's eight hours. What exactly is it capturing? And also, I've been seeing a lot of commentary about the restoration of the footage, and there's some controversy around how that's been done. So I, I'd love your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, I'm completely obsessed with that movie. I watched it in full, all eight hours, six times. So I've spent, you know, almost 50 hours of my life watching this movie because I'm completely obsessed with it. I've never seen, I've seen so many music documentaries. I've never seen one like this. Yeah, but actually watch it. You watched it six times or like you were letting it play while you were doing laundry. I mean, I'm not alone in that because a lot of my friends who are, you know, like, professional musicians are also completely obsessed with it yeah. because mm-hmm. nobody shows that, you know, nobody shows the practice, yeah. the band practice, you know, the, the parts that aren't fun, 
and the bitterness and like jump <clears throat> that kind of like interpersonal yeah, yeah. sniping that goes on yeah but you must have yeah, you must be it, like you must have the riff to i got a feeling just sort of seared into your subconscious at this oh point. oh yeah so basically the the gist to to respond to Devika's question is that there was about 60 hours of unreleased film footage from the late 1960s in the apple vaults apple meaning you know the beatles famous uh, kind of enterprise, yeah. not off the computer, of course. And so Peter Jackson was visiting with them for some unrelated project. Like they were talking about doing some kind of virtual reality thing. Peter Jackson, director of The Hobbit, among others. Yes. Yeah. And so he asked, you know, uh, about the existence of this footage. And they said, oh, yes, we still have it. And he said, well, I want to take a look at it. And so I've, I've looked at some of this original footage. So this was footage that was shot for, there was a movie called Let It Be uh, that Michael H Lindsay Hogg had made, and that's now out of print. And, you know, people are very divided about this movie, you know, people who have seen it. It also, like this film, it also takes you through that final Beatles show on the roof of Apple Studios in London. All part of their kind of multimedia. And the, the album also grew out of that too, right? The Let It Be album. Well, yeah, I mean, that's a whole separate story that be beyond. Basically, the, the, there's, they shot a lot of footage that they did not use. And so he went through all this footage, almost 60 hours worth of footage, you know, and he had like a team of, you know, computer programmers and experts kind of treating the footage with all these kind of high level, I think, machine learning, fancy techniques that they used to bring the footage to this kind of shiny, almost luminous, bright, very kind of almost crisp digital look to this old analog footage. And it's really interesting. It's not like they colorized it because the colors were there. You know, the footage was shot in color originally. Um, so it's not like his previous World War I documentary that he did, where they did have to, the treatments they did for that movie were different. The, the way that they treated the footage was different. For this movie, the colors were already there, but they're clearly very amped up, you know, because I've looked at some of that original film footage and, you know, all of the, you know, all the film artifacts have been removed, you know, all of the colors that look kind of dingy and muted are now glossy and bright and they look so much sharper. And it's really a strangely hyper-realistic immersive experience. I, I saw someone describe it as yassification of the footage. Oh, whatification? Oh, yassification. This is some kind of... Is it a TikTok or Twitter thing where people are made extremely smooth and yeah. and, and, uh, and youthful looking? So they've been referred to in this uh, in Get Back as the Smooth Beatles, which kind of made me laugh. And I know it's it's provoked some uproar in 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 some corners of the film restoration professional landscape. 
and we can perhaps talk about the contrast with the Velvet Underground documentary later and the way that that footage has been treated and restored. But yeah, I mean, from what I've seen of Get Back, which is not a great deal, I'd love to be able to sit down and and um, immerse myself in it. But it was it's very interesting aesthetic choice, and, and there is a there is a slightly uncanny valley effect, but paradoxically an immediacy at the very same time. So I would like to get back into it, as it were. But um, please, don't, yeah, when I'm going to do a pun, I'll give you a little kind of. But I can't wait to uh, I can't wait to return to it and really immerse myself in it. But yeah, that was the yassification thing. Thanks for the gloss, uh, Ash. That was actually oh. excellently done. <laughs> but Geeta, uh, it's it's interesting to hear you describe it. In what I'm gathering is is not critical terms necessarily. You think it was an interesting effect? Yeah, I mean, and not just that. It's the fact that in any other director's hands, this would have been maybe a 90 minute movie, and it it would have been like. You know, when I saw Summer of Soul, I was I saw that a few times and I was really disappointed in that movie because they had all these incredible performances that they would only show you parts of. And you would see uh, it was so heavily edited and there were so many different talking heads. Isn't there a Sonny Sherrick performance where it's just like a flash? That's what I've heard of it. I haven't seen that yet, but yeah, yeah. And um all these fantastic performances from Nina Simone or um, Sly and the Family Stone or uh, Stevie Wonder, you know, and you know they have the 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 total creme de la creme of like every performance you'd ever want to see, and all you're begging for is just show me it. Like I want to see all the performances in full. Why are you just showing me like excerpts from these performances? Like you know nobody has seen this stuff, and so. It was such a tease, you know, that movie, because it was like you would see uh, just one song or one part of a song, and then it would just quick cut back to somebody talking about the importance of Stevie Wonder or whatever. And you're like, I don't care. Just put it back to Stevie. One of the things that makes Get Back so great is that there is no commentary and that it's just pure kind of uh, very tricked out uh a fly on the wall footage, more or less. And another another thing that's uh, that I found really interesting is the restoration of the audio tracks of the dialogue. So I guess they spent hours and hours kind of going into these these audio tracks of what the Beatles were saying and the conversations they were having, and like stripping away all the noise so that you could actually hear, you know, the shit talk that was going on <laughs> as they tried to hide their own conversations. And that's all kind of back in the movie in in certain ways. No, I, I kind of have a question uh, based on what you both just said uh, and the comparison you made, Gita, between um, Summer of Soul and Get Back. You know, I am curious, a lot of uh, music documentaries like these that work with found footage or archival material, what is the directorial intervention? You know, I mean, how are you kind of seeking the directorial signature there? I think a documentary like Summer of Soul, it's so heavily edited and contextualized, I think, in an attempt to kind of make it feel directed, you know, like all this footage was captured by someone else. And uh, Questlove is like, wants to put it together as his own interpretation. I haven't seen Get Back, so I don't know how to you know speak to the directorial approach there. I think it's the in the editing of the and the, the form that he that he's given to this uh you know, mountain of footage because one, the one 
quibble I had with Get Back is that there were these there were a couple of scenes where uh, they jam with Yoko, where it's like Paul and John just playing feedback and Yoko singing, and I think Ringo is playing drums at one point, and they're just they're just you just see glimpses of it, but it's clear that they that they've been edited so that you're not going to see the whole you know rehearsal or jam session. And uh, at one point, it's framed as like a release of frustration after George Harrison leaves the band briefly, and then the, and so that they it's like the rest of the band was angry, so they did a big a noise jam with Yoko. And to me, that was like maybe not uh, not an accurate representation of you felt somewhat misled, perhaps. No, I felt that this was a uh, conventional interpretation of events that maybe was not an accurate representation of 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 what was happening i think the the comparison with summer of soul is an interesting one personally i was more than happy to enter into what i felt was a a contract with the film on, and take it on its terms I, I totally hear the uh the frustration with wanting to see some of these performances play out in their fullness and to to really luxuriate in the the rarity and the richness of these performances but from the, the the sheer number of costume changes of the MC, uh, the very charismatic MC whose name presently escapes me, he must appear in at least fifteen different gaudy costumes, which indicates the sheer level of of editing that had to be done to fashion some kind of narrative. And it's functioning both as a showcase for the performances, but it's also trying to tell a local history, a national history, a musical history. And I actually found it to be quite smartly organised um, and and organized in a thoughtful way, particularly with the, the fifth dimension chapter, I was thinking, oh, hang on, we're, we're, we're jumping around too much. But it always seemed to come back to the music. And I, I'm generally agnostic about talking heads, apart from talking heads in interviews in documentaries, apart from when I'm not. And in this case, I think that framing personalized the story in a productive way. And I found myself very moved in, in the conclusion when one of the aforementioned talking heads says something to the order of, Watching this proved that it happened, um, that it wasn't just a, a myth, that it wasn't lost to history. I don't know the, 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 the legal or the ownership situation behind um, the footage. I would love to see somebody give the, the get back treatment to this particular footage. I'd love to see something spread out and splayed out that allows you to, to really immerse yourself in that detail. But in terms of a, of a propulsive immersive and and, and well-paced viewing experience. I really did appreciate Summer of Soul, uh, even if it did have that, it was afflicted by that general documentary curse, music documentary curse of trying to pack in quite a lot. It wasn't striving to be unconventional, but I think it did an interesting and, and relatable, if that's not too so-so a word to use, job of, of, of putting across what it was trying to. So I, I was kind of into it. Yeah, I think there's a distinction to be made between like a concert film and a doc and a documentary here more or you know a music documentary which may or may not be a valuable distinction but like in it, like a concert film of this would just be the footage edited to have like full performances but which as you say clint those editing choices are often dramatic in their subtlety and reveal all kinds of biases along gender race sexuality historical lines that come out in in ways that this this purported hands-off approach can really mask some really key editorial choices and particularly in things that present themselves as almost unedited or free-flowing or, or gargantuan in length. Yeah, definitely. And I think that Get Back is sort of a 
one thing that I kind of want to return to that Gita was talking about was the way that it kind of drilled down into the practice of being in a band and making music of writing songs. And this is something that you don't see. This doesn't exist in other movies, really. Other than, I think, a film that we've mentioned in our emails, the classic albums, Steely Dan Asia documentary, which does kind of, it doesn't get into like the, the interpersonal politics, but it does get into like what the, the nuts and bolts of making a song, like what it takes to actually make this music. But yeah, that's that's kind of what I think ultimately is most fascinating about the Beatles movie is how much detail you have about what it takes to put together these great pieces of music, these pop songs. And, you know, you also come away with an appreciation. You know, it's kind of, it's ridiculous to say that I didn't go in with an appreciation for the Beatles, but let's just say it was like, I was a little tight. I, you know, you're not, I wasn't, I was like, oh, Paul McCartney, great. He's a great genius, blah, blah, blah. But then you're like, Jesus Christ, this guy is like a real genius. Like he's, he's incredible. That was a question I had for Gita actually, because I was really interested to hear your perspective on how Get Back um, illuminates the Beatles, a, a, a not knowingly under-recorded or under-exposed outfit in the public eye. You know, I remember when I was young, the Beatles anthology series, they've, they've had kind of major comebacks and um, resurgences in the public eye in many years. But how, how specifically do you feel that this one shed new light on the Beatles? This is so much different from all of the other uh, kind of re-releases and remasterings and reversions and all those things that they've done that the kind of Beatles industry has put upon us. This is completely a revelation to me in so many ways. You know, I loved the Beatles as a kid and I wouldn't say I'm a, a super, super fan, but I am a fan for sure. And um, I know, you know, I think anybody who writes about music uh, is to some extent, you know, definitely has been immersed in the Beatles lore at some time. I My first book was about Brian Eno, uh, and it was about the process of making music. The whole thing was about being in the studio, making the songs. What is it like to be fearful of not having any music prepared and to just go into the studio without a song and have to make the song? I mean, that's actually a very dramatic story that isn't often told uh, because we focus so much on the end product with music. We focus, focus on the end result, the album, the tour, you know, all of these things where a lot of the joy of making music is in those moments you don't see. It's in the practice room. It's at the sound check. It's, you know, it's the stuff backstage and a lot of that stuff you don't see and it's the stuff that isn't pretty and it isn't interesting and it is sort of a grind but there was this one quote this Eno quote that I wrote about where he says if you think that Mozart just had everything in his head and then he like wrote it down and and he was the super genius then you have this idea that you could never be Mozart right you know I'm paraphrasing what he's saying but if you think Beethoven just like was some this brilliant person who just massive, you know, these symphonies just poured out of his brain and then they were just there, uh, then you're never going to think you can be Beethoven. But the inspiring part is to see that that music starts from very humble beginnings. And yeah, I mean, I'm not a songwriting genius like Paul McCartney, but 
you know, I think for me and anybody else who's been in a band, we recognize some of ourselves in those uncertain tentative moments in the beginning where you're not sure where you're going to go and you're not sure how this is going to lead. And, and, you know, everybody starts from a blank page. Everybody starts from the same beginning and, you know, you're presenting this very inspiring story. I think get back is an inspiring story because you're seeing what they started with and how they built something up uh, from scratch. And um, so if you only see the finished project product, you know, you're always going to think, well, I could never be the Beatles. I could never do that. They're super geniuses and I'm not like them. Um, and I'm not saying, you know, maybe there'll, there'll never be another Beatles again, but uh, that, you know, I think it presents a very inspiring story for people to see the process that is so often uh, under wraps. I think the the process part of this is is really important. You know, we would, as I was thinking beforehand about how to approach this subject, which is quite a big one, I was asking myself, you know, what do I look for personally in a music documentary? And And process is a big part of it, the illumination of that. And we do live in a in a time where access is is very restricted or, or managed or very, very PR controlled. So these glimpses into organic process and organic dynamics, whether they be um, recording or personal or preferably both, are really valuable. We, we kind of semi-joked about the Steely Dan classic albums, Asia, but but that that whole series has been, you know, it, it, is, it is extraordinary for its focus on the process, whether it's Songs in the Key of Life, um, Stevie Wonder, where there's this incredible supercut of him miraculously playing the drums, the keys, um, singing, everything. And, and it's just kind of beautiful edit. And you, you really, you see that inspiration, whether it's Peter Gabriel, so, where you find that Stuart Copeland was, was or you find that Peter Gabriel was, was argued around to allowing symbols on his new record because he hadn't allowed symbols on his previous record. And they hired Stuart Copeland simply to play only symbols on the opening track. And, you know, and, then, you they, this... and then they always isolate the track, which is one of my favorite <laughs> moment is the, is the, uh, when they isolate uh, David Bowie's backup vocals and on a uh, satellite of love from transformer. Yeah. And it's just this, like, it's, it's like spine tingling. Just and, this and, uh, and Michael McDonald's isolated vocals on peg, um, where you have Don, Donald Fagan and Walter Becker kind of leaning over the um, the mixing desk, cackling as they isolate their friend's straining vocals. But it's just, it's beautiful to see that process. There's a great South Bank, um, South Bank show documentary on the making of Peter Gabriel's security. And you get a sense of his almost like ch child, not childlike, that, that's too condescending, but um, in, an innocent glee in the making of the music and, and, and the new techniques that he, you know, he's going out into a scrapyard and bashing up, um, various technology and washing machines to get this perfect sound. And it's it's so thrilling to, to have that level of access. And I really do find that to be um, a valuable thing when I'm, when I'm looking for, when I'm watching a music documentary to actually get some kind of insight uh, into that process and those dynamics. Yeah, I agree with Gita about the, this, about Get Back also being sort of about like a, rev a revelation in terms of like the fact that it's just regular people making music. And I think that that's true, but on a purely uh, nerd level, you also, you come to like appreciate the warmth of these, of these individuals. And you come to see like different aspects of Lennon who that I never really had, had recognized before, like 
his, uh, you know, he just seems to be like a much more kind person than maybe I had, I had thought of him or than maybe he's been portrayed. But um, speaking of people who have maybe not been portrayed very kindly um, or as kind people, we could move on now to uh, the Velvet Underground documentary and Lou Reed, a man who, is, who seems kind of grumpy. Before we do that, I just want to mention that this week's film comment letter will have a little bonus, a, a sneak peek into a hopefully soon coming Beatles documentary, another Beatles documentary by the Romanian director Andrei Ujica, who for years, who, who is known for making um, films like Videograms of a Revolution and the Autobiography of Nicolae Ceausescu. And he for years has been working on a Beatles doc and he wrote a really lovely essay about you know, being in New York for this, the 2021 New York Film Festival and having a completely random, like truly cosmic run-in with Paul McCartney. So I just want to <laughs> shout that out before we move on from Get Back. Now we can get back to moving on from Get Back. Ash, did I do that? That was great. Well. <laughs> fantastic, fantastic. That That is how to segue. Yeah, it was my segue was, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's better. Yours was much better. I think. I think we can all agree. You're listening to the Film Comment Podcast. Sign up today for the Film Comment Letter. It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. So, Gita, you also recently wrote a great piece on this on the Velvet Underground documentary, Todd Haynes' Velvet Underground documentary. We'll keep this short because uh, we here at Film Comment did a f- another full episode uh, interview with Todd Haynes and Amy Taubin and um, Ed Lockman about about this film and Ed Lockman's um, Songs for Drella concert doc. But uh, Gita, I know you had some things to say about the Velvet Underground. Yeah, you know, I personally did not really like that movie very much. Um, I'm a huge Velvet Underground fan and, you know, totally immersed in their story. But I've also written a lot about the kind of people in their orbit. So, uh, you know, I've written extensively about Tony Conrad and written about Angus McLeese and uh, all these kinds of people that I felt that this documentary was so Lou Reed centric in so many ways. And Kale centric. And, and Kale, you know, I, I have a lot of respect for both of those people, but there was so much that I felt the film didn't cover. Uh, and then the, then there were people like Nico who I felt had a very kind of, I think they had two different commentators talking about how Nico was beautiful, you know, or whatever. And I was like, can you just talk about her music, please? Like, like she was brilliant, you know, but you don't get much of a sense of her beyond this kind of gauzy figure that she's often portrayed as. And I was just, I was immensely frustrated because the movie doesn't really, and this is such a contrast we get back, which is all about the music that actually the Velvet Underground documentary had very little to do with music at all. Um, We never see how a a song is made. We never learn anything beyond the Velvet Underground's first album. You know, they completely gloss over everything else. Like, 
with just the bare mentions uh, of the kind of range of their music. Like you would watch that whole movie and then be left with this idea that that the, their first record was like this pinnacle for them. And then you have albums like their third album, which are so soft and very kind of these gentle rock records that are so different from, you know, the kind of uh, heroin, white light, white heat kind of stuff. I mean, I think that's because Todd Haynes as a director is much is more interested in cinema than and in the aesthetics of the band to a certain extent than in the music and the aesthetics of the music. Yeah, yeah. And then even from the aesthetic side of it, it was like a lot of that footage, uh, uh, the Warhol stuff, I had was, were things that I had seen before. And so it was a frustrating in a way, uh, you know, and maybe I checked to talk this up to the fan that fact that like I said I'm a huge fan of the Velvet Underground so I'd already seen a large like the archival footage was stuff I was already familiar with but then it felt like by the end of it that I had watched like a two-hour commercial about the Velvet Underground you know what I mean it felt very this sort of surface kind of glossy idea of what the Velvet Underground was yeah i wouldn't go that far uh, personally i i actually really liked it but i think that i agree with some of your credit i do think that it was less interested in the music i wonder if there was a slight titling issue uh, might seem a slightly obtuse comparison but i thought of boyhood when when boyhood was released and and people got quite upset about in some quarters were like the, the, the title had almost like a pretensions to universality when in fact what was being unfolded was a very specific white middle-class <laughs> American experience. It wasn't a universal film. And if, if Boyhood had been called something else, it may have escaped some of that critique. And I wondered the same with The Velvet Underground because the, the, the title has almost pretensions to, to authoritativeness about the band. And, and I agree with, with some of Gita's criticisms that, uh, of, of what it very selectively picks out. It, it, there's a huge focus on the early part of their career and on Lou Reed and John Cale. I was coming to the film um, as someone who's fairly, you know, I, I, frankly agnostic about the band. I've enjoyed what I've listened to. I'm more into John Cale's mostly thought unlistenable mid-80s output, including artif <laughs> artificial intelligence, which I recommend if wow. you like the truly ugly synth sounds. But I was, you know, I, I enjoyed it um, as a, you know, I did, I enjoyed Todd Haynes's kind of aesthetic flexibility is lots going on in the in on the in the frame at all times you know there's never anything to there's never a moment where there's not something interesting happening so you, you, your brain's kind of ticking over making these connections I, I appreciated the whistle stop tour through 60s avant-garde cinema and, and seeing some some interesting names and faces pop up and I enjoyed the kind of patchwork lattice work quality of it but then I, I was coming to it to, to learn a few things and to, to <laughs> sound something very basic, but to just have a vaguely enjoyable experience and not something that was entirely conventional. Because I find that a lot of music documentaries can be extremely, extraordinarily conventional. And I appreciated that I got the sense that a real filmmaker um, was making this film and paying attention to how his film looked and how it moved. But absolutely, uh, I think Gita's um, criticisms are really valid. And, and I can't imagine coming to this authoritative presenting portrait of the Velvet Underground as a super fan uh, and, and seeing something that, that may only appear as a surface level. But I, d I did enjoy it and it was great because I'd 
very recently watched Songs for Drella, which is a concert film, which is the album that Lou Reed and John Cale recorded um, as a, a tribute, love letter, posthumous um, ode to Andy Warhol. Drella is a contraction of um, Dracula and Cruella, which was a nickname that um, Andy Warhol did not like very much. But there's an extraordinary drama in, in, in these men's... Um, and filmed by Ed Lackman. F filmed by Ed Lackman at, at BAM with no audience because Lou Reed wouldn't allow an audience when they filmed it. One particular um, track, A Dream, which comes near the end, is one of the most moving and um, spectral, beautiful things I think I've ever seen. So it makes a great double bill with that um, when you're building on the tension between Lou Reed and, and John Cale. But perhaps um, the Velvet Underground documentary, documentary does fall into some traps of uh, conventional traps of picking out certain narratives that, that that we have to hew to to make this story exciting or relatable. Um, but I did I did enjoy the film. I really, frankly, didn't know much about the Velvet Underground going into this film, so I you know I watched it with a very open mind and can't really. I think reading Gita's uh, review actually alerted me to a lot of illusions that I just wouldn't have known. You know, just being so unaware of that history. But from that point of view, I agree with. Ashley, that just going in with that kind of, you know, not not real kind of expectations. I, I am a big Todd Haynes fan, though. So I had expectations of the filmmaking. Uh, I didn't know really what to expect in terms of the story being told. I really just found it transfixing to watch. And um, I found it really transporting as well. I think you're right that maybe it's misnamed because it's not as much about the band because that would require telling their story through time. I think it's about a moment in time in New York. And yes, I mean, the the tour, the tour through avant-garde cinema was you know catnip for me and I just I really the use of the screen tests uh for one right off the bat I think this this use of this yeah it? this this use of this um very seminal like avant-garde uh object and technique also duration is this you know very powerful technique that you don't really see in music documentaries or in general documentaries that much and that kind of uh, being confronted with these people's faces and eyes com combined with the use of the drone. Uh, I just, so even now when I recall the film, I can just recall those two sensations so powerfully. And they did feel like they took me to that time when these two, I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm exaggerating a bit when I call them innovations, but that's how they're presented in the film. They were kind of develop, developed, you know, these ideas of music and of cinema uh, represented by the drone and by the screen test. I just found that kind of framing very powerful and, and uh, I, enjoyable is maybe a cheaper word for it. I think it was more than enjoyable for me. I just felt I was awash in what the film was doing audiovisually and aesthetically. Um, and I think that is maybe what Haynes was going for to ask someone who has so always been so interested in in form. Um, but yeah, I say this not necessarily as a counter to the criticisms of you know the weight presence, the Velvet Underground, but just the things that I it really worked for me as a film. Yeah, as maybe less as like a documentary about or a information about yeah. the Velvet Underground. Did you see there's the Jim O'Rourke interview with Todd Haynes where he calls the the use of the screenshots staring heads instead of a it's a staring heads documentary instead of a talking heads documentary that's that was, clever that's good, that's good <laughs> i i don't know i mean for me though i mean i've written 
a lot about drone music and I just, I don't see the connection, honestly, between Warhol's long duration films and drone music, really. I feel like a lot of that uh, drone music, I see more of a connection with, let's say, classical Indian music, uh, which was something that was largely ignored in that movie. Well, except for when, except for when Lamont Young says that he was the first person to ever do sustained. Invented. <laughs> in much the same way that UB40 invented reggae. I do remember Clint and I looking at each other at the press screening and just being like, what the fuck <laughs> at that moment? I was just, you know, Lamont Young, you kind of expect that sort of thing, I guess. There's no... But Gita, you made, you made a good point that the film doesn't challenge him and the film doesn't, doesn't really open space. So for a film that ostensibly seems quite free-flowing and expansive, there's a, there's a counter-effect to that, which is actually fairly hermetically sealed because such assertions are not challenged. And I just wanted to thank you, Gita, for making that point in your review. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, no problem. Uh, yeah, I just, I, I, I guess I, w- w- what I'm trying to say maybe more succinctly is that tying things to Warhol that tightly, like like the drone stuff to that, tights, it ties it to this white Western art uh, approach, whereas the Velvet Underground's music came from uh, black music. It came from jazz Lou Reed talk, talked very extensively about jazz. The drones, the concept of the drones came from places like Indian music. But it, the more that we tie it to Warhol's factory, the more that we limit ourselves in kind of our understanding of the kind of holistic idea of where that music in the 1960s came from. Because, you know, I just think back to my own parents, you know, living near New York in 1967 you know, having uh, moved there from India and uh, the kind of cross-pollination of cultures happening in New York in the 60s of all these immigrants and all of these cultures mixing together, all this music mixing together. And I guess I didn't get a sense of this kind of cross-cultural mix that New York really was. The film is certainly insular in its presentation, that's for sure, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's a good pivot point to talk about um, another recent documentary, Fire Music, Tom Sergal's Fire Music, which we can, and then, and at the same time, we can kind of fold in. I know that we wanted to talk about um, Made in America, the Ornette Coleman documentary by Shirley Clark, and uh, if you, if we also want to touch on the Milford Graves, Full Mantis film from a couple of years ago. I think that those are good counterbalances to fire music. I haven't seen fire music, but is that an archival film or is that? Yeah, I, I recently reviewed fire music as well for four columns. I believe it came out in September. And so uh, that was, yeah, it was all, uh, you know, archival footage with some new commentary. And, you know, it had some interesting segments uh, and it was really presented to talk about the kind of free side of jazz so it's, you know, a lot of these innovators from that side of jazz, uh, you know, in contrast to sort of the staid presentation of jazz that you see in like a uh, Ken Burns jazz documentary, uh, that mammoth documentary. I forget how many parts it is. I think it's 10 hours long where, you know, it presents a much more kind of, let's say, uptown version uh, so this is more like the kind of downtown jazz. But it's short. It's only like an hour and 
15 minutes long or hour and a half long. Yeah, you, you really get a sense of the enthusiasm uh, behind the director's sort of, you know, is clearly a huge fan of this music, clearly wants to present this music that he loves. And as far as I understand, it's his first full-length documentary. You know, he had made a lot of music videos for bands like Sonic Youth and stuff like that. And he's also in a band himself. But yeah, to me, it fell short. You know, I wrote about this. It's difficult, you know, to create a documentary uh, in general uh, about people who have mostly passed away. But I also feel like one of the things I point to in that review is that uh, there's very little coverage of the women in that scene. And so the, the women they do have speaking in that movie, um, including Carla Blay, who's a phenomenal musician, they're mostly talking about the men, like when they, when they are speaking on camera, they're the the footage they're using is them talking about the the male musicians for the most part not about their own practice so you see them briefly on the screen but they're not really talking about their own music so that was frustrating to me because they they could have taken more pains to present the women of that scene as well i think formally that it's like very straight it's strange to me that you bring up ken burns because it would, I actually thought formally it's very much like a Ken Burns documentary. It's a lot of talking heads, experts. Yeah. And there's even like a jazz historian sitting in their you know, book-lined living rooms. And I think it doesn't... Yeah, I, I was disappointed in it. But um, I just feel like it fell short of doing justice to its subjects. But also it fell short in doing justice to the history that it's trying to tell. I think what I meant with the Ken Burns contrast is that that documentary doesn't really focus on the kind of really avant-garde. Oh, sure, sure. Totally. I just mean like formally fire music is almost is not trying to do it. Like, whereas the Velvet Underground movie, I think, is really kind of trying to do different things with the music documentary form. This is very much a traditional talking heads there's a couple of films that are nice counterpoints to this, and I want to kind of address them briefly. Yeah. One um, is a film by Lisa Rovner called Sisters with Transistors, um, which is a, a history, almost all archival material um, and, and voiceover recordings, outlining and, and kind of expanding upon the history of uh, women in electronic music. It's, it's formally kind of quite austere. You know, there's none of the trappings we, we, we've kind of referred to before people stand... People sitting in front of um, book book line shelves or record line shelves. It's really about um, these women and their processes. Um, women that have been like badly overlooked. It begins a lot in Britain. There's a composer I'd never heard of, a, a technician called Daphne Oram, who basically kind of looks like Margaret Thatcher, and it is very genteel. And it's just making these totally kind of wild, wild out may there. May or may not be Margaret Thatcher. May or may not be Margaret. Maybe that's where it all began, but. Um, and, and it's so focused on the work. I found that really refreshing. And, you know, it brings you up to date towards the end. But it's so laser focused on rectifying the omission 
and keeping true to it, to its own mission to show us the work of these these women, Suzanne Chiani. Oh wow! I just looked her up, Ash. This is I'm looking at an amazing picture. Yes, of a woman who looks a lot like Margaret Thatcher in you know in front of a turntable, like just these extremely just <laughs> genteel, softly spoken. Not not that I want to bring any assumptions to the table, but but it's a remarkable to kind of pair that visual with the truly out there work. Um, I, I the, uh, the the one the one note I had about the film which struck a slightly off chord was the, the treatment of Wendy Carlos in the film, which, which, which um, she's kind of, she's, she's the only person in the film that's kind of criticized and is not thanked at the end. Um, she, she's kind of single-handedly credited with setting back the cause of electronic uh, music and, and innovation uh, with her switched on bark. Um, so I really recommend that. Um, I learned a lot from watching it. The other one um, on a free jazz tip, as, as people used to say in the UK in the mid nineties, is Milford Graves' Full Mantis, directed by uh, Jake McGinsky, which um, is a beautiful, very intimate portrait of the uh, jazz musician, drummer, professor, uh, martial artist, and sadly late uh, Milford Graves, who passed away uh, not so long ago. Herbalist. A herbalist. Um, <laughs> Acupuncturist, yeah. You, you name it, essentially. Uh, and this film is a product of a very intense... Um, and it, as I said, intimate collaboration with with Jake, who is uh, a musician in his own right and was a student of of Milford or, or the professor or prof, as he referred to him, for many years. And and the reason I love this film uh, in much the same way that I love Ornette Made in America is that somehow, by some alchemy, the film form is communing with the with the form purveyed by the artist. So you get the sense, unlike fire music, which I quite enjoyed, where you're watching a fairly, a very conventional, quite staid form around these innovative, um, unclassifiable, electric, electric in more ways than one musicians. With Milford Graves and Ornette Coleman, Shirley Clark's film, you're watching these films just stretch and shape and breathe and loop back on themselves and cut and do weird things in a way that you feel... Um, is so true to the, the artist in question spirit. And I think that is a rare thing. And, and with Ornette and with, with Milford, uh, those are two of my very favorite examples of the genre because they're doing something so different and in tune with the artists and, and their own artistry. Yeah, I, um, you know, I feel like this is something that happens with films about artists in general, not just musicians, where I have this experience often where it's the inartfulness of the film or of the telling contrasts so heavily with, you know, the art on display that it can really feel like you're, you know, watching something that has cheapened, that has been cheapened by the uh, process of this, uh, of the making of the film. And I think both the films you mentioned, Ash, Ornette and Milford Graves, it's remarkable because they're not just working with archival footage. You know, these filmmakers are actually filming uh, these artists. And, you know, I think all the films we've discussed so far worked with archival footage or were looking back. Both these films are, you know, looking at their at the artists head on, even if they also employ archival footage. And I think Ornette Made in America, which is directed by Shirley Clark, a little more so than Milford Graves for me, really manages to like, yeah, maintain step with the artist in the telling without it seeming indulgent or, you know, it is, it's, there's like these stroboscopic, is that the word stroboscopic shots in Ornette Made in America, which I feel like in a different film could have felt really corny or maybe even very literal minded, you know, trying to mirror the, his like kind of free jazz rhythms with, with this free form um, impulse or rhythm of the documentary itself. But it's 
really remarkable how fluidly the film like weaves in that and um, with not talking heads, but still figures who are providing context, historical context, cultural context, whether it's other other musicians, Ornette Coleman's collaborators, uh, his family members, nothing ever feels stayed, even though it has all those elements of a music documentary. And I was most struck by the segments where, uh, which sort of reenact his youth, but I would say, I mean, reenact is kind of a not the correct word for it because they're much more uh, oblique. You know, there are these shots of a young black boy walking around the area where Ornette Coleman grew up, I guess, near his home. Uh, and I initially, I didn't know what those scenes were because it's not clearly marked as a reenactment, as, you know, a flashback or anything like that. And I just thought it melded very beautifully with the whole film, which feels like it moves between different registers so easily and gives you a real genuine sense of of this man and his uh, you know his personality and his genius um, and the interviews with Ornette Coleman himself are remarkable. I mean, the way he's talking about space, for instance, the way he describes at one point, I forget whose music he's describing, someone he was playing with in Morocco. He describes the music as a boat of fire. Um, he describes an experience he had with circumcision and said that he decided ultimately that he it was more important to be a man than a male. I mean, a very forward thinking and, you know, complex statement. Like she, she captures so many of these uh, great sort of testimonies or, or glimpses into how Ornette Coleman thought while also giving us a really palpable, tangible sense of what his music felt like to the people who were, you know, witnessing and experiencing it. I mean, there's that sequence. I, I, I don't know where it was set in a sort of ballroom setting where people are dancing like crazy in response uh, to a performance that I, I really loved. And um yeah. Uh, oh, and, and I wanted to mention the ending of the film where after a performance, there are people coming up to him and introducing themselves and telling him how much they love the performance and a reporter is trying to set up an interview. I really love these kinds of um, scenes. Also in Summer of Soul, I loved the scenes of the audience, you know, getting a sense of like the actual encounter between the music, between the musician and the people who are receiving the music in that moment in time and history, I think that's that's quite special. So I was I was just taken with it and I had not seen that film before you all recommended it. So I watched it yesterday and it was just, it's thrilling. Yeah, I've seen um, all of those uh, movies as well. And I've written about, I think all of them though, um, Sisters with Transistors, I, I moderated the, for the premiere that Metrograph did the U.S. premiere, I moderated a panel with Suzanne Ciani and Laurie Spiegel, who are both in the movie, and then um, several other musicians who are not in the movie. And for somebody like me, who's just so immersed in that history, I honestly felt frustrated because it covers, I think, too many people in one rather short movie. You know, I'm somebody who obviously is way nerdy about that stuff. So I, especially since I've written about those figures and I, uh, that the movie spends, I would say about 10 to 12 minutes, maybe 15 minutes on each person. And for me, each of those people, uh, you could easily make a two hour documentary about each of those people. 
And then, so for me, it was like, I didn't personally learn anything new from it, but, you know, I had already been very immersed in those people. And like Daphne Oram had a, there was a big retrospective some years ago in London, the London Science Museum had uh, an exhibition with the Aramics machine. And I, I went to London to see that exhibition and uh, interviewed people uh, around Daphne, because obviously Daphne's been has passed passed away a very long time ago. So for me, it's like, give me like a five hour documentary just about Daphne Oram and I will totally watch it. But that's the kind of person that I am. And I think if if you are not like, but that's because it's my field. And I think that it's a good movie for people who don't, uh, who aren't like super nerds about that scene already, you know, like, and the, the same thing with the Velvet Underground movie, like you were saying, if, if you're just a casual fan or somebody who maybe has never heard of the band before, then it's a very enjoyable movie because it's it's well presented, it's visually stunning. But for the nerds like me, I want every movie to be Get Back. I want every movie to be eight hours long. I'm hoping that the that they'll discover you know sixty plus hours of the Velvet Underground rehearsing for the third album, and we'll get the Doug Yule. Like, you know, argue, oh, arguing yeah. with Sterling Morrison about who's going to play bass. Yeah, if only that footage existed. I mean, one of the luxuries with the Beatles is that the footage did exist. And I don't think you could get away with making an eight-hour documentary about most bands because it's only a band with the historical import of the Beatles uh, you know, can you imagine, you know, convincing Disney Plus that they need to carry an eight hour long documentary about the Velvet Underground or something like that? I don't think that would fly. Well, this is str- straight to YouTube <laughs> situation, straight to some library archives. Yeah. I want to recommend a couple of quick things on this front. Roots Rock Reggae is a fantastic um, documentary that may or may not be on popular streaming site for free. Um, which is a very, very interesting early documentary about the birth of reggae music and the business specifically and and the politics of it. I've been working on something around reggae uh, in film, which uh, connected to my job. So keep an eye out for that. Uh, Story of Lovers Rock is another one by Menelik Shabazz, who who passed away last year. The Lovers Rock uh, as as a kind of subgenre or offshoot of, of reggae, which is um, very specifically developed in the UK in the late 70s and early 80s and was leapfrogged in a way to to prominence or catapulted to prominence by Steve McQueen's film Lover's Rock as part of his Small Axe anthology. And I love Lover's Rock, the film by Steve McQueen, but I, I also really, really deeply love and adore um, Menelik Shabazz's documentary, The Story of Lover's Rock, which is currently uh, streaming on the Criterion channel. And I think it's a very beautiful and... Uh, illuminating and sensitive um, portrait, not just of the music and its origins, but of black British life uh, in the early 80s. Um, So I recommend that very much. And it's been uh, really, really fun to chat today. Thank you so much. This was great fun. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us, Ash and Gita. It's been great. Yeah, great to meet you all. The Film Comment Podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. 
visit us online at filmcomment.com.